boy has talent, but one in particular that is exceptional. Very well. This is the 2020 film Chevalier. It tells the story of Joseph Boulogne. He was born in Guadeloupe in 1745, the son of an enslaved woman and a plantation owner. Joseph became a well-known composer, violinist, and fencer in France. In a new France, you cannot topple what has been ordained by God. Not everything is about you people. Black musicians were also making their mark in America. The Hemings family, enslaved by Thomas Jefferson, as well as Jesse Scott's talented family in Charlottesville, showcased their musical prowess in diverse genres, including European classical music. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Music. I'm Jamal Milner. Normally, I'm behind the scenes engineering the show, but today, I'm bringing you conversations about forgotten African-American maestros. My first guest is David McCormick, a violinist who has recreated the music of the black fiddlers of Monticello. That included two sons of Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings, Beverly and Esten. It also included Jesse Scott, who was white and Pamunkey Indian and married into the Hemings family. Scott and his children played several string instruments and were known as the Scott Family Band. To my surprise, after living in Charlottesville for over 20 years, I never knew about these great musicians who were from Monticello and from the area. Why don't we know about them? You know, so I grew up in Charlottesville, too, and I didn't know about them until about three years ago. It is a, a lost moment in history. A lot of people know that Thomas Jefferson was a violinist. A few people also might know that his daughters and his wife were also amateur musicians. But we have this lost piece of history that there is this rich fiddling tradition at Monticello and in downtown Charlottesville. Unfortunately, it's because they were black. And so much of that history is lost to us because the people keeping track of history weren't writing it down. Does that make it difficult for you to learn about their time period and their contributions in music? And if so, how do you figure this out? It's made it incredibly difficult okay. to um, to piece together the breadcrumbs. It wasn't as easy as sitting down and reading someone's long account of the fiddlers that they encountered at Monticello. It was random newspaper articles from the Chillicothe Gazette, where Eston Hemings ended up, for instance. And Chillicothe's in Ohio? In Ohio, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And going through even court records here in Charlottesville, was able to find out a little bit about the lives of some of these fiddlers and just piece it together little by little. And even some of the longtime historians of Monticello who aren't musicians hadn't noticed that they were actually staring at pieces of music that were in some of the the records about these fiddlers. Who would have written the actual musical notes in some of those records? So a lot of my research does, in fact, center on pieces that are in Jefferson's collection that the fiddlers at Monticello might have played. We don't know for sure except for one piece. There's one piece that Jefferson actually wrote down in his own hand called Money Musk. Okay. Um, And when he writes something down in his own hand, that's a pretty good indication that that was one of his favorites because he doesn't do it very often. And we know that Eston Hemings, when he was in Chillicothe, was famous for playing Money Musk. It was like his tune. And so we have that connection. And that was what inspired me to keep looking in Jefferson's collection for other pieces like that. This performance of Money Musk includes clarinet and violin and an instrument called the Yankee Vial. Okay. um, And what is is that? It is basically a cello. Okay. Um, It's kind of a a fat cello. (laughs) Is it tuned similarly? It's tuned slightly lower. Okay. But not as low as a bass. Okay. But it was this common instrument of the dance band at this time. And you're also going to hear an instrument called the bones. Okay. Now, this was not an Eston Hemings band. This was an innovation of this group of people that I got together. Ben Hunter, this incredible fiddler, really wanted to try bones on a few of these pieces. And it worked so well, we decided to do it in performance, even though we don't have any indication that Eston Hemings and his band played with bones. But it just sounded so great this way. And it's such a cool instrument. In the time period, it would have been actual bones. Well, let's check out this performance of Money Musk. (音楽) ¶¶ 
What's really cool about this, the performance piece of this project was getting to hear what this music really sounded like. Right. In the instrumentation of the day, using materials of the day. So for instance, my, my violin was uh, strung with sheep gut strings. Okay. And that gives us some indication of what this sounded like. And it's a little bit separated from the fiddling tradition of today, even though that's an unbroken tradition. Uh, fiddlers today don't use gut strings for the most part, for instance. And they don't use clarinets that have the 18th century key system, which was a simpler key system. And so we're hearing things in a, in a new way and, and really getting to inhabit that sound world. In his notes on the state of Virginia, Thomas Jefferson often degrades or refuses to acknowledge the abilities of black people to master European culture. Did he also have these views concerning black musical ability? Oh, absolutely. There are two quotes about music in Notes on the State of Virginia. One of them is just simply introducing the reader to the banjo and noting its African origin. That's a helpful quote, actually, to historians. <laughs> the other quote is not helpful and is kind of awful where he basically says African-Americans can really only manage to sort of compose a small catch and are good at learning music by ear but don't have the ability to read off the page. And he was so wrong about that. Okay, right. right. <laughs> he couldn't have been more wrong. And, and, he, and he was faced with that contradiction when he was in Paris. He heard yeah. this famous Afro-European violinist, George Bridgetower, who was only nine years old and who was playing circles around everybody in Europe at the time. And who also ended up being a composer. Okay. Uh, you know, and, and his own sons. He had three sons who were fiddlers. And we know among the Scott and Hemings family fiddlers that some of them knew how to read music. And we know that Jesse Scott was a composer. Okay. So, so all, they, all that's refuted. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, that's one of the things we know Thomas Jefferson has contradictory life, if you put it that way, I guess. Yeah. Um, he would express certain things in the public arena, but as you see and read and historians have found out in the personal arena, he didn't quite act in those same ways. Yeah. And, you know, I don't, I don't think he was stupid. I think he knew that he was wrong. <laughs> right. And being a politician, too, there's an aspect of what you have to advertise to your political uh, group. Absolutely. What were some of the European art music compositions that you know that they played? Yeah, this was maybe the, the thing that was most surprising in my research. I was expecting to find a few minuets and waltzes here and there. I was not expecting to find large swaths of European dance suites from the most popular operas of the day. So we've got uh, works by Meyerbeer and by Aubert. This, the Meyerbeer is Robert Le Diable, is the opera that the Scots played from. There aren't a lot of dance pieces in these operas, so we can be relatively certain that they played certain pieces from those operas. And they're not easy. Right. They are really complicated pieces of music, even when you strip them down to their bare essentials. Um, and it, it tells you something about the talent of these fiddlers. Okay. In your research, one of the things that was most fascinating to me is you have a picture of the Scots, and they're at a party. And at this party... They are with the white party goers, but in the foreground, you can see the actual black people who are the servants who are working. So it appears from that photo that the Scots were in some sort of special caste, comparatively speaking, to the black servant class. Tell me about how the Scots navigated the South as traveling musicians. Their story is incredible, and that photograph is amazing. Right. Um, I cannot stop staring at that photograph. Three years later, I'm still staring at it, just kind of amazed. They're at the Cool Springs Barbecue Club. They are standing shoulder to shoulder with Confederate generals. Wow. You know, who had just finished fighting a war to keep them in bondage. Right. <laughs> and, you know, part of it is just that they were part white. Okay. And part of it is that they're musicians. Right. There's this sort of special class because musicians and certain other professions, you had to be able to inhabit that sort of white cultured world, right? right? You had to learn these European opera dances. You had to dress a certain way to play for that fancy ball. It's the same 
for certain other jobs like valets and so forth, right. had to dress the part, had to act a certain way, and it elevated their social status because they were able to do it. Right. When we spoke earlier, you told me about a piece called Vals Infernal. What is special about this piece of music, and why did you perform it at the Rotunda? This is one of the opera tunes that we know the Scott family played, and this is one of the tunes where I was like trying to strip it down to its basics so that it would be more like a fiddle tune. And you can only strip it down so far. It's a pretty complex piece of music. And the version that I ultimately came up with that I performed at the Rotunda was actually really hard. Okay. It was really virtuosic. And I want people to hear it and understand this is what the Scott family was capable of. This is some serious tunage here. <laughs> Here, we're going to check out a little bit of Vault Infernal. There are certainly hard fiddle tunes, right? You know, fast, breakneck speed pieces. This really was kind of a, a shock to me. And actually, the first time I played it in rehearsal for the rest of the band, they all looked up and went, what are you doing? What are you playing? What is that? You know, it was an unexpected find, for sure. And it's without a doubt something the Scots played. And it was very popular in its day because Liszt had made a piano transcription of it. So it was known as this piece of virtuoso music. And that's Franz Liszt, the yeah. great pianist and composer. Yeah. All right. He made a piano transcription of it that's wildly difficult. Well, David, thank you so very much for speaking with us today about the Black Fiddlers of Monticello. It's been my pleasure. David McCormick is a violinist, executive director of Early Music America, and artistic director of the Early Music Access Project. Justin Holland was a gifted musician, abolitionist, and Freemason. He was born free in Norfolk County, Virginia in 1819. Holland navigated the complexities of race and class to become one of the most respected musicians of his generation. I spoke with classical guitarist Ernie Jackson about his discovery of American maestro Justin Holland. Thank you for having me. This is, I can't tell you what an honor it is to be here speaking with you of like mind, like culture, and like interests and in promoting the music of scholars from a time then that we weren't being referred to as scholars, but we realized going forward that these people were scholars and they left their legacy for us to discover and continue on with. So I want to thank you for having me on here to do this. So I discovered Justin Holland my first semester of my freshman year of college at Wagner College on Staten Island. You know, I'm born in Manhattan, raised in Brooklyn. And so I found my way to Staten Island with this fantastic guitar teacher, Ed Brown. And Ed Brown happens to be an expert on American guitar music because a lot of people just focus on European music, like that's the standard. But there's so much here in the United States that it's just not being presented and played. So he took it upon himself to discover American music for classical guitar. And he came across Justin Holland. So my very first concert in the fall of 1983, yes, there was a program that he put together and my classmate, John Salvaggio, played a piece called Last Waltzes of a Lunatic. Sometimes you'll see it known as Last Waltzes of a Madman, Last Waltzes of a Lunatic. So John played that, and Ed Brown was explaining that this music was written by a black man named Justin Holland in the 1800s, and how rare that was, and what a find. So that was the first time I had ever heard the music and the name. I had just graduated from my Jimi Hendrix phase to my Aldi Miola Fusion John McLaughlin phase. You know, and, and getting and getting into my King Crimson phase. And so I was being the quintessential 
guitarist of the <laughs> 80s. Okay? So that's where I was headed, you know, uh, black classical guitarist who could play everything. Well, could you describe to us what is the American guitar style? And did Justin Holland contribute to the dissemination of this style to the rest of the guitar players in the 19th century? The American style is different because it blends something. So from the European side, it's the aristocratic nature of it. It's a social construct. It's coming from the stile brise in the style of, okay. right? America has their songs that they would sing in parlors. The sophistication of it all. That's the difference. So again, when your listeners listen to Home Sweet Home and Variations, you're going to hear that familiar thing. There's no place like home. It is just brilliant. It's just brilliant. What I tell you. Yeah. Man. Man. <laughs> what I tell you. Yes. It's that second movement that gets me where the melody is in the bass. <laughs> uh, oh, oh, come on, man. <laughs> so your thumb is working. I was reading in Justin Holland's Method for Guitar, and he also seems to be like sore and some of the older composers about how you should utilize your thumb on your fret hand. You're not really supposed to use it to play bass like I do often in blues and jazz, for example. How hard is that, playing all those bass notes like that? Let's just say I leave it up to other people to do. <laughs> so a lot of the music that you'll hear from Justin Holland, his arrangements, and remember, these are all arrangements, for the most part, he only wrote like 33 original pieces. Okay. But like the arrangements are in the European style, but they are American songs. Justin Holland was born to free parents in Norfolk County, Virginia, and his parents were successful with farming, but they die when he's a young man and he moves to Massachusetts to continue his education and his education in music as well. What type of environment would Justin Holland find in Massachusetts in the middle 19th century? Is there something to be said for the settlement of Quakers in certain areas that maybe Black people sought solace in, that they could thrive? Holland attended Oberlin College from 1841 to 1843. And Oberlin actually admitted some of its first black students in 1835. It would have been a similar type of environment that he was familiar with in Massachusetts concerning race and racial difference. Holland left Oberlin due to his inability to afford to pay tuition. But during this time, he begins to get a lot of work as both a musician and I think as an arranger. Yeah. Uh, Ernie, what did he do? As an arranger. And I think the best thing about it, as I was thinking about this just last night, can we just say that Justin Holland worked remote? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> can we just say if a publisher sending you music to arrange by post, what they call it back then, by post, and then you're sending it back and getting paid, you're working remote. 
How popular was the guitar during the 19th century? A very popular instrument. Why? It's portable. The guitar coming over here, Stauffer, the person who trained, you know, C.F. Martin how to build the guitars, like taking that design. And C.F. Martin was the original Martin on Martin guitars from Nashville, right. Pennsylvania, that mostly nowadays are used by the flat pickers, yep. finger pickers. I own yep. one too. Right. Martin, come on. Come on, come over here, Martin. <laughs> Let's start. So that was a small body guitar. It's still societal though. And the reason I keep saying it's societal because who were the better guitar players back then? I would say women. 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 Yeah. And he did teach at the state. He did teach in these places. He taught societal people guitar. He taught women. Right. So after performing for a while and mm -hmm. going out on the road and really perfecting this Holland material, you then enter the arena of the guitar gunslingers or the competitions that take place in music. Oh, people always tell you, music's not competitive. It's not this competitive thing. But obviously, humans are competitive. So in various forms of music, there are musical competitions. And so classical music has them. But there also happens to be in like this American rural music traditions. We have like fiddle contests and guitar picking, finger picking, flat picking contests. So Ernie, I understand that you participated in some of those contests coming from Justin Holland to... <laughs> You know, Nashville. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, you know, so when I would go to the Chet Atkins convention, I am the only black person there. Let's just call it for what it is. Yeah, yeah. It's a three-day thing. The convention is like almost 24 hours. Like you could be in, a, in the lobby, people playing, exchanging licks and stuff like that. I used to do the uh, version, and you will hear this piece done by Michael Vescones, La Traviata by Verdi is another hard one. Now, that's a straight European from an opera, right? That one, that kind of flows. Right? Then it gets ridiculous. Okay, okay. <laughs> so I started playing that, and they're sitting there like, huh, because it's the kind of thing that people who are, are referred to as thumb pickers, the Merle Travis style, the Chet Atkins style, the thumb pickers, which is not far from a classical style. It's just that they use a thumb pick and maybe one, maybe the index and second finger at most. If they use a third finger, it's rare. Okay? So we're kind of close cousins, classical and thumb pickers. All they hear is a really cool melody played finger style. So even though we're two different families, the common ground is finger style. So when I'm in Nashville, I'm playing with these guys. They play with their thumb because when they play with their thumb, they're able to, they're basically using all five fingers. Once I'm down there, it's common ground. It really doesn't matter what beliefs you have, but when you start playing stuff, and you're just cool exchanging music. That's what it's about. And the the way you win contests is to always play something nobody's heard before. My same teacher, Ed Brown, said to me one day, just in casual, oh, hey, Ernie, the, you know, they mentioned Justin Holland in the classical guitar book. So the classical guitar book is this gigantic book that features all the great classical guitar players throughout time. So I said, all right, cool. So I went to the music store and I happened to see the book. And I look inside, my teacher did not sell it properly. There was this picture of Justin Holland and a picture of my book. I think it was the sixth edition. He had never been in it before. Wow. We had this great store in the village, Matt Umanoff Guitars. That was a legendary guitar I store. I remember that store. So I was in there and I saw, oh, here, here's the book. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, I bought it right away. I still have it, you know, here. And so for my 40th birthday, my accountant, he was working with my hero, Niall Rogers. And All so right. he arranged for me on my birthday to go meet Niall Rogers. So I go up to Niall and I bring Niall presents. You know, I bring him a copy of my book. I bring a, a magazine for him to sign because he was on the cover. And he's going through the classic guitar book. And you know what he said? 
He said, if I had had this book before Justin Holland was in it, I would never play classical guitar because there's no black people in it. That was deep. Getting that from my hero, for him to say, I had basically, I had done a great thing. You know, they say, even if it was just one person in there, he would have thought about playing classical guitar. Wow, right? Oftentimes we need to see someone who may look like us or be from where we're from or have some commonality with us to inspire us to do something different. And humans can do almost anything any other humans can do. And so seeing someone do it, it's very encouraging and inspiring. Did you find that in your playing? It, it was just weird for me because... I didn't look at it that way, but you know, that's the kind of thing like my grandparents who raised me would say, okay, some families will say, why are you playing that music for? That's not our music. I said, I'm playing it because I can play it. And so instead of perpetuating the stereotype, this is the norm. Like people will say to us, well, you're the exception. It's like, no, I'm the norm. You know, I am the norm, my friend. I can play this. Full disclosure, I didn't tell you this last time, but I have to confess. Do you know the one style of music I can't play is the blues? I am ah, so hard. Wow. All right. See? <laughs> Stereotypes. There you go. I, Unfortunately, I, the form of music I can play is the blues. <laughs> so in some of the biographical information on Holland by James M. Trotter, he describes some of the social conditions that Justin Holland was able to make for himself. And he sounds like he was actually like a successful American entrepreneur. They didn't care. It was that Brainyard and Sons. That was the publishing company, right. Brainyard. They didn't really care. I was like, this guy's good. And nobody sent him a letter. Hey, you know, this is a black guy, you know, <laughs> say, or. All the notes are black. You know, <laughs> seriously, all the notes are black. That's all I know. It's all white people, the notes are black. And so it's just a different time. And I just think that it's, it's a kind of like a dream situation to work. Right. Like you said, he was remote work before uh, the internet. That was, that was a thing. <laughs> Worked from home. Ernie, this has been amazing. I thank you so very much for taking your time to talk with us here on With Good Reason. <laughs> My pleasure. <laughs> thank you for having me. Ernie Jackson is a professor and co-director of music production at Queensboro Community College. His latest recording is The Music of Justin Holland. It'll be released by Minnesota Public Radio. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. I'm Jamal Milner sitting in for Sarah McConnell. Jovia Armstrong began her journey in creativity as a child in Detroit, Michigan. She was inspired by her family, her church, video games, and cartoons. What made you want to be a musician or a creative person at all? Can you tell me a story? Yeah, so there were a few factors. One was my, my dad, who's a vocalist. He actually moved from Alabama to Detroit to join Motown, but he was drafted to Vietnam. So he didn't quite make that dream come true. And after Vietnam, he started his family. And, and so from then on, we joined a church. And so my dad just sang in church and his brothers would join us. So that was one. My dad, he would always play music in the house. When my dad wasn't, my mom was. Then there was my older sister. She had 15 years on me. And she always pushed me to play percussion. She was so in love with Sheila E. and Prince. Like those, she loved Prince. And she would say, you should be like Sheila E. and just play drums. And I never, I don't remember ever telling my sister that I wanted to play any instrument. It was her encouraging me to, to do this thing. And I do remember one year, I, maybe I was 
eight or nine years old, she brought me a drum set for Christmas and it was just a really cheap toy. And so it broke the first day I got it. <laughs> But, you know, I was pretty young and people at that time, you know, they always ask you, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know, and I don't hear that question a lot anymore. I don't hear people asking kids that. Maybe I'm not, maybe I'm just not around kids they're like that anymore. They're already Instagram influencers. Well, they're, <laughs> they already have a job. They already have a job. So I would tell people, I want to be a cartoon. And they would look at me and smile and smirk or laugh, and some people would just chuckle and say, oh, that's cute. Well, why? Why do you want to be a cartoon? You know you can't be a cartoon, right? And I'm like, well, I like the aspect of, you know, the piano hitting Bugs Bunny in the head, and he gets a knot, but a few minutes later, he's fine. You know, so I was looking at these people as being like immortal. I say people, look at me, right? This, this, these, these personified, <laughs> uh, animated these, characters. These, these characters. Well, they were real to you. They were real to me um, as a kid. And, and, and also I would say that the music from those cartoons, I really love the music from cartoons. Almighty oh, warrior of great fighting stock. Might I inquire to ask him, what's up, Doc? I'm going to kill the wabbit. I was big on video games, so the music from video games. I would play a video game just to get to a certain stage, get to a certain level just to hear the song. And I remember even as a kid having my own little radio station. It was, it was just my little double cassette tape recorder, and I would be in the room, and... I would talk and host this show and have these fictitious characters. Either way, at a certain point, I think I got tired of people laughing at me. I could see that nobody was taking me serious, that I wanted to be a cartoon, right? So I said, oh, okay. People are looking at me like I'm an idiot, like I'm dumb, dumb little kid. This cute little kid, she's so, oh, whatever, you know? So I remember one day I got into trouble for doing something. I couldn't tell you what it was, but my dad was not happy. And I just remember in my head, I'm having a conversation with myself. And I said, I'm so tired of this. And I didn't get in trouble a lot, but this was the last straw. And I said, I'm not going to get in trouble ever again. I'm just going to do what my parents say because I'm too old for this. So I'm just going to do everything. I'm just going to be obedient. And at that moment, I kind of let go of this whole like cartoon idea and I said, I'm going to be a musician. But there was something about cartoons that drew me in. It wasn't so much being a cartoon. It was this idea of being immortal and this idea of helping people. I love the superhero cartoons as well. So I became a musician and I was 11 or 12 and that's what I decided to do. I, for this first album, The Antidote Suite, I actually decided to dye my hair blonde. And not just blonde, it was white. Just wanted to, I don't know, just having fun with myself, you know. And so my dissertation concert comes up. It's in Chicago. And I didn't take a whole lot of clothes because I had so much equipment. It just took maybe two outfits. I ended up wearing black leather shoes, a black pair of leggings. They were leather leggings, a black halter top, like a tank top. And I had on a red, a red shirt. It was a short sleeve shirt, but it was open. I wore it and it, you know, went down to my knees, a little bit past my knees. I've been working so hard for this moment because this is music that I've written that people are finally going to get to hear. And they're going to finally get to see me play this instrument, this box that we call the cajon, right? right. And spent all these years playing music. And when I was not playing music, I was teaching. 
and anywhere from elementary to high schools to nonprofits to doing workshops. So now this is it. This is the big event. So I play. We did two shows, same set, and it was so much fun. It was great. And people walked up to me afterwards, multiple people who didn't even know each other, and they said, this was such a great show. I feel so amazing. Like, this music is beautiful. It's wonderful. And you look like a superhero. And, <laughs> like, very nonchalantly, they would say this. And I say, wait, what? You look like a superhero. So then I actually stop. I'm looking at them, and I decide to look at myself. <laughs> <laughs> and I look down, and I look at my outfit and my white hair. And I was just like, whoa. Somehow I have channeled Storm from X-Men. So you finally actually became a cartoonist. I, I self-actualized my true love, my dream of being a superhero, of being this cartoon. And I was able to do it through music, right, and education. When you think about education, these teachers are adding value to these students, to their lives, right, but in some cases, these students are looking at their teachers as superheroes, as you saved my life. Thank you for being so hard on me. And so teachers are giving that to these students. Then there's this other side of me who's this musician, composer, who's making this music that's supposed to help people contemplate to give them this mental healing to alleviate the stresses of everyday life. And one of the songs on the Anecdote Suite is called Meditations on Oya. And Oya, she is an Orisha. Okay, and Orishas are ancestor spirits in West African religion, like in the Yoruba religion. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And Oya is, she's basically the, she's the Orisha oh, of winds, wow. lightning, storms. I hear that she's very fierce. You don't mess with Oya, you know? Right. And so she is who the creator of X-Men had mimicked Oh, wow. Storm I did not from. know that. Storm. Okay. Yes, Professor? I wonder if you could audition someone for me. Well, people don't talk. That's one of those things, right? People don't really talk about that. Where do these cartoon characters, these ideas for our superheroes come from? We could trace so much back to Africa, you know? <laughs> what were the composer's intentions for this one piece, for example? A lot of the music incorporates my dissertation work. Okay. But I did it with the art in mind. Okay. And so this was black art. All right. Basically showing black life in a different light. Okay. You know, a lot of times there's black death and that's what we see on the news. But right. these yeah. artists were, you know, doing something a little different. And so for that song, that song was actually created for a video that you can find online. Okay. We sat down with the director of the film, which is another professor, Disha Deshawn. And they told me what they were looking for. Okay. And this professor, Dr. Ray, she just so happens to be heavy into polyrhythms. Okay. And she studied dance but jazz so i said well do you want this in four four six eight what are you what's the feel she said both so when you listen to meditations on oya you hear a drone okay um but also i have the idea of having one note that barely moves okay like a motif maybe or a sustained note but it could be rhythmic okay so if you just have one note you can put rhythm behind that one note of right. course right. um so you'll hear that you'll hear um minimal chord movement. When the chords move in this piece, they only move by half steps. And there's African drums in it, so I wanted to have the African presence, so that's where you would hear also the polyrhythms behind the song. But the bass would go boom, 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 boom. So the bass note is playing like these half notes, piano's playing whole notes, and on top of that you hear African percussion. And the piano, which is playing these whole notes, and the tempo was like something around 178 quarter note. 
But when you hear it, that one was more modal. And so modal, I mean, the opposite, but it's different than functional harmony. Modal harmony, all of the notes are kind of equal. It's not like functional harmony. from the first album. The second album um, actually wrote before the Antidote Suite. Okay. And um, What's a particular piece from this album that you would like to play for us? Uh, this one, I would say Creation. The, the first track on it is, is one of my favorites. This, when I very first wrote it, the bass player played the note A for the whole entire song. Okay. Just A. But the rhythm, because again, we're talking about drones, so I wanted to just just play A, right. but there's a rhythm to it. And the rhythm was a part of my family's knock. Okay. So my family has a knock. My uncles came over, you hear the horn beep, and it was beep, 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 beep. So this rhythm in the song is boom, 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 boom. So it's in six. Okay. Two, three, four, five, six. When we got to the rehearsal, which was the day before the recording session, I started to make, I wanted to make it a little bit more interesting. So I changed a couple of sections of the song so that the basses could open up a little bit more. But yeah, it's it's a pretty rocking song in, in 6-4. With Shades and Shapes, I wanted to really let the violinist, Leslie, the Shazor, she plays electric violin in the group. And I really wanted to give her a moment to shine. It starts off with... The Embira. Okay. And I put a bunch of delays okay. on the Embira and some other like reverb. It was crazy. And so it starts off with that. And it it really goes wild into this groove. Boom. And so it starts off there and then we play this line. 
religious group. But that line, that actually is the melody in the very first song of the, of the album. about briefly though is Beautifully Black. I would say it's my favorite song on the album. It's okay. a song where as I was sitting in my bedroom um, in, in Sherman Oaks at the time, I was thinking about that whole concept of there's no such thing as mistakes. Mm-hmm. So I said, if this is true, then I should be able to sit at this piano and hit record and keep everything I record. And of course, I'm not a pianist, so... I recorded it, listened back, and I said, hey, that's interesting, and let my professor hear it. He used to play with Miles, and so he he was like, oh, it's a nice song, but it's way too dissonant. Right. He played with Miles. I love, I love dissonance. <laughs> right. And I was like, oh, okay. I had already sent it to my bandmates in Detroit. And so when we met to go over the music, I told them, I said, well, yeah, this song, you know, I don't think... Kay liked it too much, so I, I guess I'll we either scratch this or we'll. I, I need to change some of these chords to make it less dissonant, and they both scream like, "No, <laughs> this is perfect! Don't right. change a thing!" And you know, I love s- stuff like this. And this is when Eldon Kelly was working with me okay. on guitar. And what's funny is my plan was to only record for two minutes, right? right. Which I did. At two minutes, I stopped recording. I listened back. Well, it's too short to record, mm-hmm. but I'm not allowed to change it according to my own rules that I set because right. it's supposed to be perfect, right? Right, right. There's no mistakes here. So what I did is I copied and pasted two more times. Okay. So now it's like maybe a six-minute song. Okay. And I added a tag at the end, which was just half of the second half of one of those copies. Okay. And I just put it on the end. I was like, okay, we're done. And that's a composition. That was a composition. Nice. Yeah. The last tune on the album was where it was just a phone melody. And so I, I created that song. I played it for them on the piano, and they kind of finished it. They really just added, like, this—I um, don't know if you want to call it a bridge or something. And and that song is called Hide and Seek. And so the whole album is about the creation of me to the moment when I wanted to just be a musician— Okay. Right. So I was going to call it <laughs> conceive. I'm like, I don't want to conception. Ah, I don't need that. That's a whole Con- other, <laughs> another kind of record. <laughs> right. You get you an R&B, R&B chart <laughs> if you start singing things like that. Right. So it starts off with creation. Then it goes to embryo, birth, babies. Okay. And then curiosity, because as kids, we're very curious about stuff. We're asking questions, you right, know. right. And then hide, then seek. So hide, then seek is kind of a play on words because at that point in my life as a kid, when I decided that I wanted to not get in trouble anymore and I'm just going to obey my parents, I couldn't play hide and seek anymore. Playing games was over. And we were in the church by then. So it was less 
hide and seek, and became more hide than seek the kingdom of heaven. Everything in that household was about God at that point in my life, you know, and so that's kind of like, it's just, it's what the album is about. It just follows me from creation to this moment when I make this decision to stop wanting to be a cartoon, be an adult. But that you, through this work, ultimately became a cartoon again. Became a cartoon. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> well, Jovia, thank you so very much for joining us here on With Good Reason. Thank you for having me. Yes, <laughs> we're going to we're going to go out to some of this beautiful music, and we'll have links on the website, and you too can get some of this beautiful sound. So, mm -hmm. so again, thank you again. Thank you. <laughs> Jovia Armstrong is a musician, composer, producer, and educator from Detroit, Michigan. She's also a professor of music at the University of Virginia. Support for this episode of With Good Reason comes from the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation. This is a charitable trust created by the will of acclaimed 20th century artist Joseph Cornell that honors the memory of the artist and his younger brother, Robert. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monacan Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and me, Jamal Milner. Sarah McConnell is our host and executive producer. Aviva Costo and Whitney Edgerly are our interns. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Jamal Milner. Thanks for listening.